This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome to Almost Heretical. So excited to be joined today by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, and the founder of Freedom Road. You can find all of her work at lisasharonharper.com. She's such a wonderful person and leader, and we really, really encourage you to go grab her book. If this is your first time listening to Almost Heretical, first, just so glad to have you here. Each episode, we work to give the Bible and God back to you. If you've had a complicated or painful relationship with the church or the Bible, we want you to know that you are not alone. There are millions and millions of others, and we are here with you on this journey. We do this show because we want to de-weaponize the Bible and the church. If you have a story of hurt related to the Bible, church, Christianity, Christian community, we are so, so sorry. And if you'd like to reach out to us, we'd love that. We read every single email we receive at almostheretical.com. Once you listen to this episode, if you want to go back and listen to more, I'd suggest checking out the recent series we just did on gender and Paul. Okay, let's jump into this wonderful chat with Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa, we're so excited. to. We've wanted to have you on the show for a long, long time, and a lot of our listeners really love and appreciate your work. So welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's really, really awesome to be with you guys. Um, really fun to meet you on Twitter and then to be able to talk with you and see your faces here. So how cool. <laughs> I would love if we could just jump right into the emotional turmoil of the last couple weeks. Uh, so I know, I mean, so this is Sunday. Uh, yesterday, Brett Kavanaugh was officially confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, can you just, can we just jump into this? Uh, I know for thousands and thousands of American people, especially women, especially victims of sexual assault, this whole last couple of weeks has been a roller coaster of trauma, of <laughs> reinflicted pain, uh, and, and a whole world of, of pain. Uh, so can we just start with how has this affected you personally? Mm. And what are you taking away from uh, these last couple of weeks? Yeah, wow. Woo, what a question. <laughs> it's actually been an incredibly intense last uh, almost three, almost, well, a little over two months. Ever since it was announced that Anthony Kennedy was stepping down, um, I would say that my, you know, my gander got up. <laughs> and um, there was a sense of a red flag moment. And uh, studying the history, understanding how the court works, understanding how the court works in relationship to the other two branches of government, um, and and how this configuration of the court currently before Kavanaugh really set up a situation that we haven't seen, literally have not seen since like 1896. Um, understanding that, uh, I the thing that really brought me into this the struggle was understanding the stakes for my niece and future generations, um, not only with regard to her as a woman, but for her as a black woman. Um, and, uh, and all people of color, all immigrants, all people who are minorities in any way, whether they be religious minorities or uh, uh, minorities in terms of gender identity or sexuality, um, or nationality, language, all of those, um, all of those, those different identity groups are literally at stake here. Um, and that was very clear. Here's the reason that was clear. It's because I understand the history. I understand that uh, the one thing that threads all of this together is not Roe v. Wade. It's actually Brown versus the Board of Education that in 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education ruled that all people in the United States are, are deserving of equal protection of the law and that separate is not equal. And so therefore integration um, was mandated, uh, especially in school systems. And so that is actually when the culture wars began. 
that the culture wars erupted just one year later, Emmett Till was lynched. And he wasn't just lynched, he was massacred. Just one individual person was literally um, annihilated by the men who brutally beat him, stripped him, um, some accounts say castrated him, um, wrapped him in razor wire, um, and then dumped his body over the side of a bridge into the Tallahatchie River with a mill tied around his neck. And so, you know, you don't do that if you just want to kill somebody. You do that when you want to annihilate someone. And so it was then that actually um, that the culture war began because what happened was Brown versus the Board of Education was a threat to white supremacy and not just white supremacy, but white space. Um, it was a threat to whites only spaces in Jim Crow America. And, uh, and, and white supremacy in terms of the vote. So from that point on, you had the, the growth and not, it wasn't just, it didn't just start here in terms of the, the civil rights movement. I don't want to give that impression, but certainly the mass movement w was catalyzed by the death of Emmett Till. And it was in that struggle that you saw, um, you saw houses bombed by, um, by segregationists who were, we're actually pushing back against Brown versus the Board of Education. You saw um, women and other white children jeering and spitting on the Little Rock Nine. You saw four little girls bombed in a church in 1963. And that is actually what led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And then you see people fighting for the right to vote for self-determination in the South, but not just only in the South, but certainly centered in the South with the Southern, Christ the Southern Freedom Movement, um, with the March from Selma to Montgomery. And then you see Bloody Sunday. So there's always a push back. And that was the actual culture war. What the people who were pushing back on the side of segregation said is they said they were fighting to maintain their way of life. That is a culture war. But then what you had was you had the passage of Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Act in 65, Immigration Act of 65, Housing Rights Act, or Housing Act rather, and all of the legislation that passed in the, the war on poverty. And white folks got scared, particularly in the South, and in particular Dixiecrats, and they moved over to the Republican Party. They were wooed to the Republican Party by Nixon. And then you had this really critical moment in 19, I believe it's 73 or 74, um, when Bob Jones University receives a piece of letter, or a piece of mail rather, uh, from the IRS saying, you are no longer um, eligible for tax exemption because you are in violation of a new code in the tax code that says you must be in compliance with the Civil Rights Act, um, which is founded on what? Brown versus the Board of Education. So they fight. They fight all the way to 1983. They fight um, in order to, uh, to win the ability to keep, hold white space on their Christian college campus. Um, and who comes to their rescue? Who tries to come to their rescue? Jerry Falwell, um, Jim Baker, this guy named Paul Weyrich, who was a politico of the time, a political operative for the conservative movement. And they lost that case, but they looked around and they realized we've actually built a movement here. What should we now leverage this movement? How can we leverage this movement? And that's when they chose abortion. They said, ah, abortion is starting to be um, looked at negatively in the country. Um, and, and so we can capitalize on that. And that's when abortion was actually chosen as the red, as the, the flag bearer of the conservative movement, flag bearing issue. But it wasn't abortion that actually um, that moved them. It was segregation. It was the fight against segregation. And the, the, I believe the centering on the courts as the, as the number one strategy of the conservative movement and the right, the religious right in particular, it is not only to flip Roe v. Wade, which won't actually achieve its end goal, which is to end abortion. Um, when you flip Roe v. Wade, all you're going to do is send the decision back to states, and the states will actually decide at that point. And the states that have the most likelihood to, to go ahead and outlaw abortion are also the ones that have the least number of people having abortions right now, the, the lowest rates of abortion and the lowest number of people in their states. 
the ones with the highest um, populations and the highest rates of abortions are far less likely to actually overturn it in those states. So you're not actually going to save that many babies by um, by overturning Roe v. Wade. We know how to how to how to end abortion or how to how to drastically lessen the rates of abortion in America, and that is to cut poverty. Abortion follows poverty, so. But what will it do? We know that one thing it definitely will do. There's never been a majority ruling in the Supreme Court in the 228-year history of the Supreme Court that has protected the rights of minorities. Never. Not one time. And so with a majority conservative court, people of color and other minorities can look forward to now 40 years, 30 to 40 years, two to three generations of rulings that whittle back Brown versus the Board of Education, because that is the one major Supreme Court ruling that all of the civil rights legislation rests on. So in many ways, yesterday, we saw the conservative movement uh, move their piece on the chessboard and call check wow. to people of color in the United States. But I'm praying that God has another move. Thanks for sharing all that. I mean, uh, I personally have, uh, haven't been able to connect all those dots. I was kind of uh, feeling and sensing the last few weeks kind of as an encapsulation of the last two years, right, since Trump was elected mm-hmm. um, and seeing this as kind of like a perfect little synopsis of the whole movement. You're actually painting this picture. It's a it's an encapsulation of most of our history, <laughs> including the, the evangelical church's culture wars. Yeah. So again, back to that question, if it is, and it does feel to you like a an act of saying check, right, by uh, white conservative America, how the heck are you coping right now with, uh, with that? And, yeah. and then how are you uh, taking steps uh, forward? Well, I think that my coping is through taking steps forward. Um, they're literally one and the same. Um, my faith, and I think that faith in general, faith is not something that it's not doesn't come in the head. It comes in the feet. Um, it comes in the hands. And um, as you do, you gain faith. And as I do, as I call people to vote, because that is the only thing now, really literally the only thing that can save the America that is an inclusive America, the America that guarantees the rights of all of its people, all people within its borders, um, citizen and non-citizens, because even non-citizens deserve human rights. Even non-service citizens have the human dignity offered to them by the image of God, which God has planted in them, and so are also deserving of equal protection of the law. And so we actually... We are literally, like literally, we are at a make it or break it moment for the United States. I'm not, I mean, I don't think that I'm one of those people who cries wolf. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who, I'm certainly not a conspiracy theorist. Um, that's not, that's not me. But I know history. And I know right now where we're at. And I'm also listening to trained historians, people like John Meacham and Michael Beschloff and um, all of uh, the, you know, the historians that actually, and Doris Leach, you know, like these are the people who write, who have been writing American history for a long time. They are actually saying, John Meacham just the other day, just yesterday was saying, um, right now, today, we are sealing the, uh, we are uh, sealing American jurisprudence for the next 40 years. That's what he said. Um, 40 years of shaping the Constitution. The Constitution will now be shaped in the image of far right wing conservatism. So what is what what how do I have hope? I have hope by by going back to the first page of the Bible and the reality that there was darkness in the beginning and there was chaos and there was destruction. Um, There was desolation. That's what that word darkness means in in the Hebrew. It can be translated in all of those ways. 
That was what was there in the beginning. And the Spirit of God hovered over the deep. And the deep, for the ones who were who were writing that text, um, according to the theory, I believe, which is that the Babylonian, the uh, priests who were exiting the Babylonian exile um, were the ones who wrote that text on their way out as they were as they had been freed. And it's interesting to me that the creation story of the Babylonians actually says that the, the, the deep, the waters is where their gods lived. It's where their gods warred for supremacy, Tiamat and Marduk and others. And here we have on the first page of the Bible in, in, the, in the creation story that these, these priests who were exiting Babylon, they say the spirit of the supreme God hovers over the deep hovers over the gods of their oppressors. And and it's that supreme God that in the hovering, it's not just hanging out. It's literally hovering or brooding like a chicken broods over its eggs, about to birth something. Um, and, and it's that God who births light just simply by commanding it to be. And I think that when we look, and that's what God does. God cuts the darkness. So when we look at history, we can always find points in history when darkness seemed to like blot out the sun. We see we see 246 years of slavery and 90 years of Jim Crow and 50 years of mass incarceration. And we see the Holocaust and we see apartheid and we see the desolation that happened in the Balkans with the Balkan Wars and all of that destruction. And, and right now what's happening in Sudan and what happened in Darfur. And in the moment, in all of those times, there's always a sense that this will never end, that darkness has won. But none of those things, none of those things has, been go, has gone on for infinity. There has always been an end to the darkness, and that is light. Light always wins. And so that I, I'm in the middle of this very, very dark moment. Um, and it is my belief and the fact that God is, and this is who God is, that God cuts darkness. That's what God does. It's part of who God is that gives me hope and hope enough to walk the next step, which was last night to fill out my absentee voting ballot and to put out the word to every single person who says they believe in justice, they want justice, to fill out their absentee voting ballot and to show up at the polls on November 6th. really appreciate the the hope that you just brought into this because I know it's been um, a time of a lot of despair for a, a lot of people. I guess what's so hard for me personally is uh, when when this is all being supported, lifted up, pushed forward by people who claim to love the same, the very same book um, and the very same God that I claim to love. Yeah. And, I, and I know lots of people claim to love and don't, don't land at the same spot. And, uh, so it's just it seems like it's becoming increasingly clear that we're talking about two completely different gospels, two completely different bibles and we're reading this thing completely differently. It's really two different religions. We're talking about two completely different religions. Um and I I just wonder if you can speak to that a bit. Well, yeah, I mean that's like that's my book. <laughs> yeah, that's, totally. That's the very good gospel. That's that's what it that really came it literally sprung from a pilgrimage that I took about now 15 years ago. And on that pilgrimage, I came out of a, of a pretty fundamentalist evangelical background. Um, at the time, I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which, which actually at the time, I remember my, my staff supervisors you know, in our training would always say, we're not fundamentalists, we're evangelical. But I, ironically, when I left InterVarsity, I had a, a conversation with Steve Hayner, the, the president of InterVarsity, during most of my years there. And um, I had a conversation with him while writing my first book, and I asked him, so what, what's, where did InterVarsity fall on the spectrum? And he said, oh, InterVarsity is fundamentalist. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that makes my whole life, that makes, like, it makes my time in InterVarsity make sense, right? But here's the reason why that's important is because it's that InterVarsity is. It, it came out of the fundamentalist soil of the 1940s and 19. Um, well, 1940s, and the fundamentalism kind of hit its apex in America 
uh, from in the 1920s and uh, and then went underground really with the with the monkey trials that were pretty embarrassing as they were trying to outlaw teaching of evolution um, and uh, but it was it was from that soil that groups like intervarsity and sorry campus crusade for christ and um christianity today um sprung and even you know billy graham association and all of the major red like flagship evangelical organizations sprang out of that out of that, that that fundamentalist soil and the thing about fundamentalism is that it shrinks the gospel that's that's what it does that is the point <laughs> to bring it down to quote fundamentals points like pr- principles but what that does is it lifts Jesus out of the context of Jesus' own story. And you cannot understand Jesus. You can't outside of the context of Jesus' story. You can't understand Jesus if you don't understand that Jesus was a brown man. Jesus was an indigenous man. Jesus was, um, was a colonized person um, in living in colonized, occupied territory. You can't understand Jesus if you don't understand that one of the tactics of war of the Romans was to spread salt all over the land so that it would not grow its own vegetation, so that the people would be dependent on Rome for its food. That's part of it's one of the one of the classic um, tactics of colonization is to create dependency on the colonizer. And so when Jesus um, says to his people, says as he, to the crowds, pray this way, um, our father who art in heaven. Not Abba, as Caesar told, tells us to say, but um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is the highest name, not Caesar's, even though Caesar wants to tell us he's, his is the highest name. Your will be done, not Caesar's, on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in heaven, but also on earth, right here. Make your will be done right here. And give us this day our daily bread, God, not Caesar. One of Caesar's practices, as Obrey Hendricks points out in his book, Politics, The Politics of Jesus, one of Caesar's practices was to throw loaves of bread to the people, just like Donald Trump threw paper towels to, to suffering and dying people in, in Puerto Rico. When I saw that, all I could think of was, was Caesar how Caesar threw tossed bread loaves to the people saying, I am your benefactor. Well, Jesus says, no, say to your father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, God, not Caesar. And so um, not the occupier, not the colonizer. So you can't understand Jesus if you don't understand his context. And you can't understand him if you don't understand the larger context, which um, is a, an entire people and every single book in the Bible, including Genesis, every book in the Bible being written by brown colonized people or people under threat of colonization. And that would be the case of David and Solomon. But even they, two kings, were kings of a dinky kingdom that kept getting sacked. That's the whole reason we have the Babylonian exile. You know, I mean, that's the entire, that's the point. So you have a, 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 a scripture, a holy text that comes from colonized people for colonized people, but it has been interpreted by empire and passed down by empire. And so I think that's why we get two different religions. We get, we get one religion that is the religion of empire, and we get the other religion that is, the, is really a religion of the oppressed, or at least in, in alliance with the oppressed. Um, and I think that um, what happened to me on my pilgrimage is I got to the end of that summer, having gone through, retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in America from slavery to civil rights, both of which are my own family's stories, according to our own oral tradition and DNA. Um, and understanding that when I get to that, to the end of that, of that, that journey, I, I have no word. When I think about what does my, my understanding of the gospel have to say to this, it was mute. The four spiritual laws have nothing to say, nothing to say to this Cherokee Trail of Tears, to the, to the experience of slavery. And I imagined myself um, uh, going and knocking on the door of my three times great grandmother, Leah Ballard, the last adult slave in our family. And, you know, saying, great, great, great grandmom, I have great news for you. 
you know, and the thing is, she was, she had six, 17 children, most likely because she was what they called a breeder. So just take that in. Um, the confluence of patriarchy and white, white nationalism is right there in my grandmother's body. She, she was forced to, quote, breed money for her master. And, you know, that meant that that meant her job that she never got paid for was to be raped every day, multiple times a day. And so I imagine going up to her and saying, you know, Leah, I have great word, great news for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> you know, Jesus died for the pay the penalty for your sin, but you're sinful and you know, so you're banned from God. So all you need to do now is pray this prayer and you get to go to heaven. And I asked myself, would that be considered received as good news by Leah Ballard? And the answer was no. And that led me into a year of depression because as an evangelical, the basis of my life was the gospel. So you take that from me and I have nothing. And, and then 13 years of wrestling over what does the gospel, what is Jesus's gospel? And that's what led me to write the very good gospel. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) One thing I uh, I couldn't help but notice in uh, in your book, The Very Good Gospel, but also I've seen it uh, in some of your other works, uh, and it's resonated uh, profoundly with me, is you mentioned the Magnificat often. And I think over the last couple of years of my own kind of spiritual journey, um, the line in Mary's song where she celebrates the good news that has just come her way, yeah. that God casts down the powerful from their thrones yeah. and uplifts the lowly, yeah. that the, the gospel I now believe in, like you, which is different than the one I, I used to believe in, mm-hmm. Uh, that's as good a summary of that gospel as anything. It is. Right? That's the good news. Uh, <laughs> right. And it's right there. Luke puts it right there up front right. and center for us to to read the whole rest of the, the story through that lens. Mm-hmm. But it, it makes me think of, you know, as, as you talk about there's uh, a religion of the empire or as Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove has called it, a, a slaveholder religion, right? A religion of the powerful yeah. that has used Jesus and co-opted the Bible and all of that. And then there's historically always been uh, the Christianity at the margins, right? Of the oppressed, the enslaved, uh, the lowly. But there also seems to me today to be this l- large middle space mm. of just kind of like passive, uh, mm. silent, uh, a gospel that just tries to like not be in the conversation um, and doesn't speak to politics, right? Doesn't w- it's a kind of gospel that says you should never talk about voting, <laughs> right. right? Or right. political candidates or part. It's trying to be nonpartisan uh, all the time. Yeah. Um, so, and then that has kind of stirred. At least I've seen some of this conversation of like. Should unity be like the ideal in the church or is actually, is this a time to be divided, <laughs> right? And people looking at Jesus's story and seeing like, no, actually his life was incredibly divisive and it actually kind of separated the powerful from from the lowly. Uh, can you speak to that of like, uh, I, I can imagine actually even you, um, you know, as you say, 13, 14 years ago, you never would have pointed to getting to the polls this November 
as one of the primary ways as a Christian that we <laughs> enact good news and justice, yeah. right? But I, th- I think a lot of us have kind of come to a place where we've realized actually if we stop short <laughs> of that, we might actually just be perpetuating this religion of the empire, even if we don't want to be. Yeah, I think that for me, this this goes to, again, going back to that first page of the Bible, there's so much you said there. Um, I was trying to keep tabs on things I want to say, so I'm just going to speak and then hope it comes. <laughs> but uh, on that first page of the Bible, one of the thing, things that you see after you see the power of God to cut darkness, then you see God creating order. And at the very end, uh, like on the last um, day, uh, at the end of the last day, God says, this is all very good. And that's actually where the title of the book comes from, right? So the very good gospel, it's about how very good everything was in the very beginning. And the fact that what that is, that very goodness is what shalom looks like. It's what the kingdom, what the rule of God looks like when it actually happens. And and that very goodness does not, it's not, when God says this is all very good, he's not saying that's a very good walrus I just made, or, you know, that's a that's a very good piece of creation. No, what God was, that, that goodness, tov is the Hebrew word, it literally exists, the people, it is a connector of thoughts, that's how it exists in the text, the syntax. Um, it's good, it's good, that's how that word tov is usually used. In, usually in the context of epic Hebrew poetry. But then secondly, as a, as a concept, the Hebrews who were listening to that text, listening to the text the very first time, they would have understood that what God was pointing to was the, the ties between things, right? So that goodness, the very goodness for the Hebrews was not actually located inside the thing. It was located between things. So that that, so that God's Focus. What God was concerned about was the relationship between things, and that very means may it's may owed, and it means abundant, forceful, um, overflowing, radically good. So then you go a little bit further up in the text, go back rather back in the text um, to Genesis one twenty six, and you have two words that stand out. There's the word salem or the word image, image. And then there's the word um, rada, which is um, the word dominion. And so the word image is, it's what God is saying is that all humanity is made in the image of God. This is a radical notion. It's something that no other civilization up to that point um, had ever declared, which is God's image is not only located in kings and queens, which was the norm of the time to, of belief, but it's located in everybody. So everybody possesses the same measure, the same heft of dignity we would normally bestow on royalty. You see that? So, and then if you're not sure about what that means, just to clarify what they say is, and let them exercise dominion. And this is, a, remember, a people coming out of oppression. Like that's one of the things that was, if you understand that context, for them to say this is, incredibly radical. What they're saying is that all living human, all humanity was created to rule, created to exercise stewardship of the world, to, to, to care for the world, cultivate it, protect it, serve it. Um, and so when you limit the capacity of anyone to exercise dominion, to make choices that impact their world, you are also limiting the image of God on earth. And I would actually now go to say that, that the original hearers understood that image of the king to be a marker of where that king rules. Where would that marker, like on, the, on an image of a coin or a bust at the, at the beginning of a city, like when you're entering, you see that bust of Caesar and you know this is where Caesar rules. You see that coin with Caesar's head on it and you know this is where Caesar rules. This is Caesar's town. Well, we bear the image of God. We are supposed to be markers of where God rules. And so when we govern in ways that twist or break or, or cover over or annihilate the image of God, on earth by uh, limiting the, the capacity of people to exercise dominion, what we're actually doing is we are declaring war against God because that's how the ancients declared war. The ancients would topple the, the images of that king in that city 
that's when you knew insurrection was happening. So, so in a democracy, which is what we have, in a democracy, the vote is the most fundamental way that we have to exercise dominion, to exercise stewardship of our nation, of our communities. If we fail to vote, we fail to live into our humanity. If we fail to vote, we fail to fully bear the image of God. Or if we are blocked from voting through voter suppression measures and other things like that, or if our brothers and sisters are blocked from voting, as people are being blocked in 23 states right now, then we ourselves are literally declared, literally declaring war on God in the borders of the United States because we are declaring war. We are coming up against God's purposes within the United States, which is for all humanity to flourish and exercise stewardship of this land. So voting and helping our friends and elders and everybody to get out and vote is actually a spiritual act of worship of God. I love that. I was, I was hit by what um, Tim was saying. It made me think of, you know, it, it feels like the, the Franklin Graham Christians, they were celebrating yesterday and then the other end of the spectrum is grieving. And then there's that, like Tim was saying, there's like that, there's that middle ground that I found largely silent uh, and it's a large, large, large middle ground. I find yeah. um, I, it's it's easy to group that whole silent group and in with the whole Franklin Graham group and say it's all the same. But I feel like the silent group is like the I, you know I don't want to call out motives or anything like that, but it feels like the kind of the Gospel Coalition um, kind of reformed group that doesn't want to get political, doesn't want to talk about you know d- this is not the space that they go into, and so they're largely like I'm not saying everyone needs to be like blowing up Twitter or something, but like. It, this isn't, this wasn't coming into sermons. It wasn't coming into, uh, it wasn't coming into newsletters. It wasn't coming into anything. It wasn't, people weren't talking about it. It just feels like there's, it's largely silent. I just wonder what you make of, and and they just go on. They want to just go on. We're just going to preach the gospel. We're going to remain, you know, level and just kind of keep preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. I wonder, what do you make of, you know, you've talked about these two different gospels, but like, what do you make of that group? Like what's the challenge, um, to that group or to those of us who have friends that are, in that group? What, what do we do? The, the, the challenge is this. I mean, honestly, I, I think, honestly, I think that the challenge is best illustrated in the people of Jeff Flake, um, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski, um, uh, Tim Scott, and, uh, and Joe Manchin. I think that when you look at the way that those senators responded to the question of how the polis should live together, how the people should live together, because that's all politics actually is. Politics is actually not supposed to be just about partisanship. Partisanship does not, it should not determine how we live together. But politics fundamentally is only really the the conversation we have together and the decisions that we make about how we will live together as a people. And within our structure, of how we've decided to live together, the Supreme Court is one of the governing bodies. And it's the governing body that is in many ways the most powerful because that body shapes the very constitution that guides our legal, our our policies and our daily life. um, that, That tells us at the very baseline what we as a nation have declared is right and wrong, just and unjust. And so within our polity, within our polis, these five senators made, they, they, all, they all positioned themselves as moderate. They all positioned themselves as in the middle, all right of center, but towards the center. And so they all positioned themselves in a way that when moments like these happen, when clear decisions have to be made, about how the polis lives together, they end up being the most powerful votes, the most powerful people. Now, ironically, Tim Scott really got lost in this mix. He's the only African-American 
senator in the in the conservative um, part of the of the Senate, only conservative Af- Republican African American. But he got lost in this. He really shouldn't have been lost in this. Um, but the reality is, is that that when you look at how they voted, how each of them voted, how they positioned themselves, I I just kept remembering. I the whole time I kept remembering Revelation. This was a revelation moment. This was a revelatory moment where we we saw for the first time what where their hearts actually were. They made a decision. And the decision revealed their heart. It revealed how they think the polis should live together. So I think that all our politics really is, is our hearts laid to bear in public. You know, the decisions that we make about how the Polish should live together. So what, what they decided, what Lisa Murkowski decided yesterday was that our heart, her heart would be the same on the inside as it is on the, on the outside and that she would vote and her heart was, was uh, revealed to be on the side of the weak. She was not going to allow someone who could have attempted to remove the clothing of a 15-year-old and covered her mouth. She was not going to allow someone who lied multiple times not only in the hearing about Christine Blasey Ford, but also in his previous hearing when questioned about his role in torture with the Bush White House, Bush 43 White House. So he lied. Emails now show, they demonstrate clearly he lied. And yet someone she was not going to let, someone who lied be among the people who determine the boundaries of justice. So her own ethics were revealed in her vote. And so were the ethics of Susan Collins and Jeff Flake and Joe Manchin and Tim Scott. Their ethics and Ben Sass, their ethics were revealed. What they actually, how they actually believe we should be treating each other and how our society should be shaped because they place somebody in our highest court in the position to determine the boundaries of justice who lied and who likely tried to rip the clothing off of a 15-year-old girl and exposed himself to a freshman woman at college. So the middle I understand when God says, be hot or cold, but lukewarm and I will spit you out of my mouth. Because when you're lukewarm, when you stand in that position and you, you fail to actually heed the cries of the oppressed ones, then you are making a choice. You're not, you're not avoiding a choice by going to Starbucks. <laughs> you know, getting your latte, coming home and watching The Voice, that's not, that's not avoiding a choice. You're making a choice because your choice to do that allows the cries of the oppressed to continue and might even increase them. So for you, I guess in the in the last few years, and then right now in this moment, uh, what are the the steps uh, that you are most committed to taking uh, for yourself, for the church, for America, to make the world a better place? What are the the avenues, practices, or the um, 
points of productivity <laughs> that you found are worth committing to mustering hope each day and saying, if I engage in these actions and these sorts of conversations or, uh, you know, these uh, motions, I can at least make a difference and, and push this thing in a, in a better direction. Yeah, I, I think, wow, honestly, I, I'm a little bit, I'm a little challenged by that question because honestly, I, I think on one level, I'm still in shock from yesterday. So I'm still trying to figure out how do we live? How do we, how do we live in this new America? Because we are now in an America we have not seen since 1896 since Plessy versus Ferguson. And I'm not saying it's now Plessy versus Ferguson, but what I am saying is that you mark my words. 40 years from now, going forward, we will not have, we won't have a strong Brown versus Board of Education, which is the foundation of all of the of civil rights legislation that we've seen since Brown versus Board of Education. So if that is whittled back, then we really do go back to the days of my third great-grandmother, of my second great-grandmother, my great-grandmother who fled Jim Crow in South Carolina, the very state that Lindsey Graham and Strom Thurmond came from, you know? So what, I don't know. I, I'm like, honestly, I'm literally, literally now in the, I mean, I'm thinking I really do need to go back and, and study the spirituality of my great-grandparents who lived under that kind of regime because we are headed there. We are headed there. That's where we're headed. What do you think that'll look like if Brown versus Board of Education gets, you said it's going to start getting rolled back. Yeah. What's that actually going to look like practically, do you feel like? Well, um, it means that it means there will be no recourse when black men are shot on the street or women, not only by police, but by vigilantes. It means that when, um, when cases are taken to the Supreme Court, uh, let's say stand your ground, if you have stand your ground um, legislation, uh, which is now the majority rule across the land, um, that people have the ability to shoot to kill if they can say that they were afraid of somebody. And we know because of implicit bias that white people are just simply afraid of black folk. Like that's just real. That's just real. That's their implicit bias against blackness. So any white person or anybody could actually go ahead and shoot a black person, claim fear. And, um, and, and you could not, we will not be able to get constitutionally um, within 40 years, we, I project we will not be able to get um, recourse on that because the Constitution will have been changed um, to be interpreted in a way that, that, that says what Plessy versus Ferguson said, which is what the land of the law of the land was before Brown versus the Board of Education. It said that, we, that black folks were not due equal protection under the law. Remember, Plessy versus Ferguson came at the exact same time at the height of the lynching movement, where there were thousands of black folks being lynched every year. And it was in that context that that Supreme Court ruled um, that uh, that separate is equal and fine, right? And that we're not really due equal protection under the law. And so up until 1950, when people were lynched, there was no court like they never had a court, never had a trial. It was actually only after the Brown versus Board of Education that even Emmett Till's um, killers had to be taken to court. You know, so they were taken to court and then the court exonerated them because of other loopholes in the law. But at least they were taken to court. Well, equal protection under the law makes that possible. You, you whittle that back and you may not even have to go to court. <laughs> you know, um, immigration, the whole thing with babies in cages right now, the whole thing with, with kids in cages and Tornillo, which is an, a concentration camp right now that has exploded under the Trump watch in the desert along the border and ordered by the court to be shut down months ago and yet has exploded in its, in its overcapacity now. Thousands are there. When the court made its order, only hundreds were there. Now, literally, more than 2,000 young people are in the Tornillo concentration camp, internment camp. And do you know, 
you take that to the to the um to the Supreme Court, and if you don't have equal protection under the law, if that's been whittled back, or you don't understand that that equal protection applies to non-citizens, then they have no recourse. So. So, you know, so <laughs> I mean, I really I hate to be the downer, but this is literally like this is what is at stake. And so and it's not I don't think that any one of the judges, any one of the judges is one that, you know, would in and of themselves say, yes, babies should be in cages or, you know, black people should be able to be shot on on demand. And none of them. I don't think any of them would say that. But I think that the way that they interpret the Constitution is such a way that gives privilege to the powerful and does not protect the weak. And that has borne out over 228 years of rulings. And I think past is prologue. I think that because you cannot name one, not even, I have gone to legal scholars and I've asked this question, can you name one legal ruling, one Supreme Court ruling where the majority was conservative and what they did was protect the rights of people of color or minorities. And in every case, the scholar or the lawyer has come back and said, no, there is no, there is no ruling like that. So if there is no ruling like that, and we are, we now have a majority conservative court and not just conservative, these are, you know, a good number of them are far right. Um, and Kavanaugh is beyond the pale. He literally is kind of off the charts. Um, and they're all lifetime appointees. They all have at least 20 more years on the court. And Kavanaugh has a good 30 to 40. And the next ones who are going to cycle off, two out of the three are going to be the liberal side. I mean, I, we really are. We really are facing a not really good time. And I, hate, I really hate to be the downer. So, so that's why it's so important right now to vote. That's why I go to the vote. Because only the vote can actually change the House and change the Senate. The Senate is the place where Supreme Court uh, confirmations happen. If the Senate is no longer in the hands of conservatives... The Supreme Court can no longer be levied as a weapon, can no longer be weaponized as a weapon and a tool or a weapon in the hands of the conservative movement. If the House is um, turns, then you can actually get just hearings and, and really like some actual investigations that help us to understand how this happened and stop it from ever happening again. And there's a possibility then of having, of restoring the checks and balances that our founding fathers and mothers um, imagined when they created our constitution in the first place. Right now we have no checks and balances. All three branches of our government, which are created to be checks and balances to each other, all three have been weaponized for the conservative movement. Yes, yeah, so if we uh, if we think maybe about that group then of those uh, I don't know what do we call it? moderates you know the in the church uh, mm-hmm. specifically yeah. you know it's funny how in all these conversations we can go back and forth between talking about the Senate and the church because they they seem like kind of mirrored pictures it's kind of true <laughs> of each other yeah. right it kind of makes me feel crazy uh, but mm. um, you know if we think about that middle group. Uh, that, like Nate was saying, just doesn't want to get involved, plays the nonpartisan card. Um, and, and now here you are picturing how bad American politics, uh, American uh, judicial system might get over the next couple decades, specifically f- for marginalized people, yeah. <laughs> specifically for people of color, for women who have been historically already with our our constitution and our Supreme court, uh, been marginalized, uh, with your gospel, which I think is the, is the gospel of Jesus, your version of what is actually good news. Like we said, Mary's Magnificat that, that God has and will flip 
the power structures of the world yes, uh, as an act of justice. Uh, I guess, what would you say to that middle ground people in terms of um, how to reorient themselves, reorient their faith, reorient their understanding of what gospel is uh, to, to parse, <laughs> you know, from yeah. this, uh, this passive position. And, and I guess uh, to add in there, uh, if, if we can't be lukewarm, Right. If if you end up at the end of the day, you're on a side, <laughs> whether you like to think it or not. Yeah. Um, is that middle ground gospel even a gospel, or is it essentially some sort of affiliate or offshoot of this empire religion uh, that that basically needs to be rejected overtly in order to not perpetuate the problems? Yeah, I I think that I, that's a great question. I think that the question always has to be. Would the would their lives be good news to the least of these? Because ultimately, ultimately what Jesus said, before Jesus went to the cross, the last sermon he gave was, there's going to be sheep and there's going to be goats. You know? He didn't mention any cows. <laughs> there's, not any, there's nobody in the middle there. It's sheep and goats, man. And the question will be, how did you treat the least of these? That's the question. And and also what Jesus said in Matthew 28 was, you know, go and uh, make disciples, teaching them all that I've taught you. And be witnesses. You know, um, Acts in Acts 1, we, we are called to be witnesses. Well, being a witness, what is a witness? A witness actually functions as evidence in the court of law. That's part of the reason why everybody was so angry that, you know, Trump limited the number of witnesses that the FBI were able to, um, able to, and not just number, but who the FBI was able to, um, to go and talk to because witnesses function as evidence. And so you can rig the evidence by taking out some witnesses and, and by, by limiting them. But so the question is, isn't, you know, are you witnessing? Are you out there sharing the four spiritual laws? The question is, are you in your being a witness, a piece of evidence of the presence of the rule of God in the world? Are you, is your life, evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God in your city, in our nation. And I don't mean this in terms of triumphalistic, um, we're going to take over our city, you know, God in the city, you know. No, what I mean is, are you with the least of these? Do the least of these, does the poor do black people, do Latino people, do immigrants, do people who are transgender, do people who are blind, do people who find a hard time walking, do the aged, do those who are disadvantaged in the current system of our governance, do they count your presence as good news? Because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. Literally, we are the body of Christ today. And if they don't count the presence of the body of Christ as good news, then Jesus is not good news to them then. But the thing is, I think Jesus actually is. And I just think that we have been a witness to a different Jesus. We've been a witness. We've been evidence. I actually, quite honestly, I think, I actually really do think that, and, and I've written this too, so this is not the first place I'm saying this. Uh, I think I tweeted it at some point. But that I think that the evangelical church, by and large, has actually become a witness, evidence, of the presence of Satan in the world. Of the presence of forces that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God in the world. 
And now am I saying that the evangelical church is from Satan? No. <laughs> I still count myself, God love me, as an evangelical. Why? Because I trace my, I'm going to be honest, My the heritage of my faith goes back to those to Charles Finney and Sojourner Truth, Phoebe Palmer, and those people who were on that circuit. The circuit, the very circuit um, that traveled throughout the northern south and the north, proclaiming freedom for the captives and abolition for the slaves and caused half of the enslaved people in Kentucky to be set free between 1850 and 1860. And my own ancestors, I believe, were among them. They were enslaved on the census in 1850 and they were not enslaved on the census in 1860. Something happened there. So, and we know that what happened in Kentucky was the revivals, Charles Finney, Finney's revivals. And that's where they were. So yes, I count myself as an evangelical in that lineage. But I think that the witness, the evidence of the modern day evangelical church has actually literally created more and more evidence, mounting evidence of the presence of forces in this world that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. So, you know, we go back to this question of the lukewarm, the middle, right? And you ask the question, what, what is the evidence of their, what is their life bearing evidence of? What is it evidence of? I think that it's certainly not evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God. God is not, God is not lukewarm when it comes to the least of these. Well, yeah, that, that feels like such a huge wake up call. I feel like to a lot of people and, um, the fact that, you know, we just, some, some people just want to go on preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel. But as we've talked about, like that's, it's almost a different gospel. If it doesn't have words, it doesn't have good news for the marginalized, the oppressed, the people at the, at the bottom of the system. And so I just love that, that challenge and encouragement. I wonder, I, I don't know. I just felt like it could be cool to have you pray for this, whatever this is, this church, this mm. church is these, whatever this divide, whatever it is. Like, I feel, I feel like it could be cool to close with, with a prayer. Would, would you mind doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Holy, 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 holy God. One who has been from the beginning and will be forever. The same one who led the priests who were exiting 70 years of oppression in Babylon to write down the truth of our relationship to you, the reality that we are all made in your image and the truth of who you are that you cut darkness that's what you do holy god we ask you to come and move your church to surrender move your people to surrender to you we have been at war against you against your image both through sins of commission and sins of omission. Forgive us, please. Move us to repentance, to walk and live in a different way, to turn from our apathy and from our self-protection, from our building kingdoms that compete with you for supremacy and crush your image in the process to a people who is jealous for the flourishing of your image in every corner of our nation and our world. Lord, help us to see ourselves clearly now. Help us to face ourselves clearly now. Help us to take this reckoning, this revelatory moment, and not run and hide from shame but rather, God, to be transformed and redeemed. Use this moment, God. Use this moment 
to bring your shalom back to our families, ourselves, our communities, our states and our nation, and to our international neighbors, both friend and enemy. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me to hang out with you this afternoon. It's been good. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for being uh, really truthful uh, and witnessing um, both to the messiness (laughs) and the not having it figured out and the fact that there are feelings of despair and bleakness. um, And for even in this conversation, also testifying to perseverance and uh, and hope moving forward. So I hope for you in this coming week and the coming uh, months and years um, that you can keep your head up and keep witnessing and uh, and find find moments of of hope amidst uh, amidst all the darkness uh, that the the light would break in more often than not. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate that. God bless you. You too. You too. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. All right, we're so glad to have you on this journey with us. If you have any questions or want to connect, we'd love to hear from you. The emails we get each week honestly keep us going, just knowing that the show is helping you. If you'd love to send us an email, you can do that at almostheretical.com. If this show has been helpful for you, would you mind sharing it with a friend? We'd love to welcome more people into this conversation with us. All right, we'll talk to you next time. I'm afraid the image titled self-dismay Make us very clear